Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Hey, one of the challenges I think we have in our culture today, it's so easy not to be known. It's so easy not to be known. Because we don't have relationships that cross over. You can be one person at work and your work relations never come in contact with your family and the connections you have with friends. You have family relationships and you're one persona there. You're a whole different, I know for many people, a whole different persona online with social media. And it's easy today to be a different persona in a different place and never be known. And that's so incredibly dangerous because what happens is we start to pretend And when nobody really knows us, then nobody can really love us. And if nobody can really love us, then we can't live with confidence and care and love one another. And in our culture today, we live this very divided, individualistic life where we have these secrets in our own life that really our family and the people closest to us just don't know. And that's why we're going through this series, Identity and Calling, that we need to know who we are in Christ. Because when you know who you are in Christ, you're able to be honest about what's really going on in your life. Some of us think, if I just got the sin out of my life, I could be honest. Doesn't work that way. I need to become honest, and that's gonna help me address the sin in my life, because see, what you're doing is you're trying to manage sin, and you can't manage sin out. The only thing you can do is, in humility, make yourself available to others and to God, and God works from the inside, showing us really who we are. And so today, what we're gonna be looking at is this gap between who we are what we profess to believe, and where we're actually living in this moment. Now, it was a quote I read by a guy named John Piper, and this is what he said and how he captured it. And I quote, he said, No pastor lives up to what he preaches. If he does, his preaching is too low. And see, that doesn't just apply to me. It applies to all of us. All of us are living in the gap between who we claim to be, what we profess, and how we actually live. And see, what that means is all of us are in need of grace. There's not a person in this room that doesn't walk in grace, that doesn't need the mercy and the forgiveness of God, and they also need a community around them that love them and are committed to them and are not going to be surprised when they share something, but instead, when they share something that's hard and difficult, instead of pushing away, as a congregation, we push in because we want to love and direct that person towards Christ. Because see, as disciples, as disciples and followers of Jesus, we rearrange our life around three goals. The first goal is to be with Jesus. Our first priority, our first calling, our first vocation is a high calling, which is to cultivate intimacy with God. Now, our second goal is to become like Jesus. That requires community. Change doesn't happen just in your room alone. No, God will work there, but instead we have to have brothers and sisters around us that know us and can be a part of our life. So we want to be with Jesus. We want to become like, and then third, the third goal of a Christian is to do the kind of stuff that Jesus did. Jesus calls us to go out in his behalf to share the gospel and to care for people in this world. Now to do that, it starts with understanding who you are. Not who the world says you are, not who your neighbors say you are, not who your family says you are, but who God says you are and how you're rooted your identity in what Christ has done. Now, when you think of the character of God, God is holy. 
And part of God being holy means that he has integrity. That who God says he is and what he does is always integrated. God's never disintegrated. So when you look at God's character and you see what he's doing, it reflects on who he is. God has integrity. The challenge is we don't. That often there's a gap between what I believe and how I live. So here's a definition of integrity. What is integrity? Integrity is the state of being whole, entire, undivided. That who I claim to be is actually who I am. And the way I live my life flows directly from who I believe I am in Christ. And so in this, this morning, what we're talking about is what does it look like to live a life of integrity, knowing there's a gap? And the fact is, everyone else around you knows there's a gap. And yet, for some reason, we want to hide the gap, right? Everybody knows there's a gap between who I am and how I live. Everybody feels that gap, and yet, for some reason, we have this need to hide and pretend. But see, Scripture's constantly reminding us over and over, before it gives us a command, it reminds us of who we are. Now, when you read the Bible, I don't know how you approach it, but often what we tend to do is we go towards the commands first. Here's what I need to do. Or maybe you have a question, you go to Scripture and say, God, show me what I need to do in this situation. But you know Scripture's not based that way? The Bible is not basic instructions before leaving earth, B-I-B-L-E, if you're following me. The Bible is a story about the character of God and what God has done to restore all things and who we are because of what God has done. And in Scripture, it's always reminding you of who you are before it ever tells you anything that you need to do. Now, our brains don't tend to work that way, but before Scripture tells you what to do, I want you to realize it's reminding you of who you are. And what this, this is called in theology is the indicative imperative. Indicative command, imperative truth. Now, let me give you a quote that may help. This is by a pastor and professor named Brian Chappell. And here's how he captured it. He said, every imperative of Scripture, what we are to do for God, rests on the indicative, who we are in our relationship with God. And the order is not reversed. So just leave that up there and think about that. Before God tells you what to do, he's always reminding you of who you are, your identity, and where your value comes from. Now, let me just give you four really, really simple examples, and hopefully this will help you see it as you start to read Scripture. So here's the first one, really simple, 1 John 4.19. 1 John 4.19, we love, that's the imperative and the command, why? Because he first loved us. The question becomes, which side of that sentence do you tend to live on? Do you tend to dwell in the I need to love? Or do you tend to rejoice in he first loved us? And see, the ability to respond to that command flows out of the impact of God's love in your life. If you're not experiencing the initiating love of God, it's going to be really hard to love others. We have to see ourselves as loved before we can go out into the world and love others. So here's another real simple example from 1 John. 1 John has a lot of these simple ideas. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What's the command? Let us love one another. Why? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. If I root my identity in the fact that I am loved by God and I get up in the morning and say, God, I don't feel loved, 
I'm not experiencing love, but by the power of the Spirit, would you show me and, and teach me that I am deeply loved in Christ? If I do that, there's a greater chance that I can go out in the world seeing myself for who I am and love others the way that God's called us. Here's another example from Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verse 36. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now, the gospel reminder is God's merciful. That's what we rejoice in. God, you have poured out your mercy in my life, and because I've received your mercy, I can go out in the world and give mercy to others. What God has done influences how we live. And here's the last one. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Are you starting to see the pattern? When you start to read Scripture this week, I want you to notice how often Scripture is reminding you of what God has done and who he is. And how when we hear that, we need to sit there and rejoice in it. We need to allow it to saturate us. And then you need to ask the question, do I see myself that way? And if you haven't started journaling before, I wasn't a great fan of journaling, but you need to. Because see, when you ask that question, do I believe this about myself, you need to answer the question, why not? Because when you ask the question why, what happens is you start going beneath the surface into your heart. And you'll find there's events in your life, there are limiting beliefs, there are lies that you're carrying about who you are, and it's keeping you from receiving the good news of what God has said about you in Christ. Does that make sense? And so we need to press into our identity in Christ. Otherwise, it's going to be really difficult for us to will the Christian life in our own strength and power. It's our identity that influences the way we live. Now, what I want to do today is kind of show you what integrity looks like. Here's the outline if you want to follow us. What integrity looks like, what it doesn't look like, and then how can we produce this kind of integrity in our life that tightens up the gap between what I believe and how I live. So what does integrity look like? What does it not look like? And how can we allow integrity to, to kind of be built up in our life? So first of all, what does integrity look like? Now, this is a pretty high standard. It looks like Jesus. And I know Jesus is a high standard, but I want us for a moment to press into the humanness of Jesus. We tend to think of Jesus and we go, you know what, he was just God, he could just do it all. It's not true. Jesus shows us what a human being trusting in God looks like, what a human being relying upon the Father looks like. And so Jesus shows us what it means to be human. And the pressure I don't know if you notice this, the pressure on Jesus to live up to the expectations of others was tremendous. Do you realize that no one in his life, over the entirety of his life, understood who he was and why he had come? Even his own mother, at times, did not understand who he was and why he had come. John the Baptist, remember him? He's getting his head cut off. And what did he ask Jesus? Do you know who you are, Jesus? Because my life is in trouble, you must not be the Messiah. Everyone in his life was doubting Jesus, putting expectations on Jesus, and Jesus was constantly disappointing the people around him because he wasn't living up to their expectations. He lived in a place of tremendous loneliness. And if his identity wasn't found in the Father and his value found in the Father's voice in his life, it would have been incredibly difficult for Jesus to live a faithful life. So I wanna show you just a few examples of the tremendous weight that Jesus lived under. First of all, Jesus disappointed his family. His family, like all of our families, have expectations of us, what we're gonna do, how we're gonna live. 
And in Mark chapter 3, Jesus has just called his disciples, and then his family comes to him because his popularity is growing. And they're watching this popularity grow, and they're watching all these crowds come around, and they're watching what he's giving. And watch what happens in Mark chapter, chapter 3, verse 20. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. And then he went home. And the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. So Jesus and his disciples have so many people around them, they can't rest, they can't eat. And when his family sees this, like any good mother, right? I'm going to interject myself, because Jesus, you don't know what you're doing. I'm your mother, I'm your brother, I'm your family. I know better, I know who you are, I know how you should live, so watch what happens. And when his family heard it, they seized him. And that's exactly as it sounds. They kidnapped him. They grabbed him. You don't know what you're doing. They said he's out of his mind. This is his family. Jesus had to disappoint his family because what they thought of him wasn't true of him. And I think all of us have probably experienced that at some time. Jesus disappointed his family. Jesus disappointed his entire hometown. And Luke's gospel, right after the temptation, Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth. And so here's the... the the kid coming home for the first time. And it's here that Jesus announces his ministry and he proclaims his identity. So watch this. This is Luke chapter 4, verse 16. How is his hometown going to respond to him? Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he, meaning Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up and he read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And he's reading, quoting from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he took the scroll and he, he rolled it up, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And imagine this scene, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that's where they say, say what? Everything begins to shift. Because Jesus has just said what Isaiah prophesied and the whole Old Testament promises, it's all wrapped up in me. And this is where everything begins to shift because now their mind's trying to catch up with what they just heard. And they start asking questions. Watch what happens in verse 22. At first, all spoke well of him. Hey, this is the hometown boy. He's making it good. And they marveled at the graciousness of his words that were coming from his mouth. And then people started asking, don't we know this kid? Didn't he play on our soccer team? Isn't his father, isn't this Joseph's son? They start to realize who Jesus is, and they start projecting onto Jesus who they believe he is. And so Jesus responds in verse 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And that's when things started to go south. When you jump down to verse 28, when they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath, not anger, wrath. You, Jesus, a mere man, are claiming to be the Messiah. They rose up and drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of a cliff on which the town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. And I don't know how he did this, but passing through their midst, kind of Jedi mind trick I'm kind of seeing, he went away. Jesus' entire hometown misunderstood who he was. 
And there was a weight of expectation, not from his family, but from everybody he grew up with. Jesus, this is who you are. This is how you should live. How did he live under the weight of those expectations? And if his family he disappointed, if he disappointed his hometown, certainly his closest friends, right? I mean, he chose them, handpicked his 12 disciples. They understood him. Not even his own 12 understood who he was. The guys who were closest to him misrepresented why he had come. James and John, remember those guys? James and John said, Jesus, listen, we know you are a Messiah and a God of power. We know that you've come to destroy the Romans, and we want to sit at your left and right. Right? When you come to Jerusalem and you sit on that throne of power, you become president and you're ruling all things. I want to be your chief of staff. You know, I want to be the director of operations. We want to sit at your left and right. And so in Mark chapter 10, Jesus has to address it. And he said to them, do you know what you're asking? No, because you don't know who I am. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and to be baptized with the baptism that I'll be baptized with? And look what they say. Just like all of us, right? Yeah, Sure. We can do that. You have no idea who Jesus is. They think he's going to rise up and take authority and take power. They want to be a part of the popularity. But see, the drink that Jesus is going to drink, the baptism is the cross. He's like, guys, you don't even know the direction of my life. You don't realize why I've come. Have you ever been that misunderstood in life? That's a place of great loneliness, and there's a temptation there to live up to the expectations others put on you, right? Right? just to kind of ease the tension. Peter, I mean, Peter was one of the inner circle. You would think that Peter got who Jesus was. And yet, in Matthew chapter 16, here's another story. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. He's he's sharing with them the direction and the course of his life. It's going to lead to the cross. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I need, I need a new microphone, guys. That's what that sound is. Rob tried to help me this week. He sent me a link to a new microphone. I forgot to buy it. So we're going to buy it this week. Oh, man. Verse 22. And Peter took him aside and notice he began to rebuke Jesus. Jesus, this isn't your mission. This isn't who you are. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter is saying the exact thing that could lead Jesus to a place of great temptation, because that's what happened in the garden, right? In the garden, he's sweating drops of blood. Why? He's saying, Father, I'm surrendering my will to your will. And here you have Peter, his closest guy, and he's putting this temptation constantly in his head. But here's what's amazing. Jesus stayed true to who he was, but he didn't mistreat the people who were putting these expectations on him. Because how do we respond when people put expectations on us that we don't deserve? We tend not to treat them well, right? We respond to them in ways that we think they deserve. Jesus did not mistreat whether it was the crowd or the religious leaders. The religious leaders said, hey, Jesus, you know how you're casting out demons? We know. By the power of demons. You are demonic yourself, and yet Jesus did not respond to those people in a way that responded out of an emptiness. He always responded out of a fullness. And why is that? Because he knew who he was. He knew who his, where his value came from, and his value came from the Father. And because his identity was rooted in the Father, 
His behavior was rooted in the Father. And he was able to go out in a world that rejected him, mistreated him, put false expectations on him, and live a life of integrity because his identity was anchored in what the Father said about him. Now, that's a high bar, isn't it? I mean, Jesus lived a tremendously difficult life, and yet what he's showing us is that this is the pattern that we have to live into. Because see, if integrity is living out of our identity, then we have to root ourselves in who we are and really find community and find Bible studies and find prayers and find whatever we need to allow that identity to root into the, really, to the core of who we are. We need to see ourselves the way that God sees us. That's a picture of integrity. Now, what does a picture of a lack of integrity look like? Well, in this case, we're going to go to Peter. Let's go to Galatians chapter 2. And here's, here's the story in Galatians. Let me give you a little backstory. Now, Peter, one of the disciples, the writer of 1 Peter, he knew the gospel. He knew that the only way he was accepted was through faith in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. He understood that God received him and made him righteous before him because he put his faith in what Christ had done. And yet, Peter lacked integrity. Who he was did not show up in how he lived. Because what happened is a group of people started coming to Peter and they started saying things to him, saying, listen, you know those Gentile Christians? You can't hang out with them. They're not as good as us Jewish Christians. And so what happened is this fear of approval This fear of man started to seep into Peter's heart and he started rejecting people in his own community, in his own church, because he didn't feel like he would be accepted. And so watch this story play out in Galatians chapter two. Peter lacked integrity. But when Cephas, meaning Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, he says, I opposed him. This is Paul writing, I opposed Peter to his face. So you got two apostles, Peter and Paul. And Paul is confronting Peter Because he stood condemned. And here's the story. Here's what happened. Before certain men came from James, meaning the Jerusalem church, not that James was promoting this, but they're coming from that church, he was eating with the Gentiles, Gentile Christians. But when they came, he drew back. And that word drew back means incrementally. Because that's how culture, that's how things influence us. It's not all at once. But just incrementally, expectations, peer pressure, it starts weighing on us. And we start forgetting who we are. And when we forget who we are, it changes the way we lived. And so Peter is being influenced. He drew back. He separated himself. Notice, fearing the circumcision party. Now, circumcision is a strange concept for us today. We understand what it means, but what does that have to do with faith? Well, in the Old Testament, circumcision was an outward sign of a spiritual and inward reality that the outward signs set us apart just as God had set us apart in our own hearts. And circumcision is not just an external thing. It's rather the circumcision of the heart. And here are these Jewish Christians that had trusted in Jesus, but they were telling these Gentile Christians to really be a good Christian. You also have to live under the restraints of the law. You need to be circumcised. You need to avoid certain food. That faith in Jesus, trusting in Jesus is not enough, guys. It's not enough to really be, really be in. You have to also add to your faith other requirements. Now, does that seem strange to us? The reality is we're doing the same thing today. There are things that we add to faith that are signs that people are a good Christian. What could some of those signs be? Sometimes they're political signs. If you're not 100% committed to a temporal political agenda, you can't possibly, ever heard this? 
You can't possibly be a Christian. And hear me on this. Your faith should absolutely influence the way you engage in the public square. But salvation is through faith in Christ alone. And everybody is on a different journey in life with a different starting point, but the same ending point, which is that we become like the image of Christ. And what we do in the church so often is we say faith in Jesus is not enough, but to really be a good Christian, you have to have all of these things lined up and you can't have any of it out over. You know what that is? It's an expectation. It's an expectation that God doesn't put on us because often, you know what we want to do as pastors? We want to play the role of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. Don't you love to do that? Hey, let me tell you about what you should be convicted of right now because it seems you're not convicted about these things. And so I'm gonna step in in the role of sanctification because I don't know what's going on in your personal relationship with God. I gotta speed that up a little bit. And so I'm gonna step in there and start condemning and judging instead of allowing God to work. And we add so often to the gospel things that God hasn't required that people maybe in their own maturity haven't gotten to. Maybe they are in disobedience, but they haven't gotten to that place yet. And we need to lovingly guide them and shepherd them, not towards our standards, but towards Christ. And sometimes just ask the question, will you surrender that belief to Jesus? Would you allow him to teach you and to guide you? And the Holy Spirit, guys, is a much better communicator, teacher, and changer of human lives than we are. And so what does Paul point to? I want you to notice this. Peter here, he separates himself from the Gentiles, racism, favoritism. But Paul doesn't say, Peter, stop being a racist. He doesn't focus his attention on his behavior. He's going beneath the surface of the iceberg. He's going below the surface and saying, what's controlling Peter's heart? Peter, You've forgotten the gospel. Not simply that you're disobeying. You're not living out of what you really believe. Watch this, verse 12. And so again, here's the story. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, peer pressure, he drew back, high school cafeteria, and began to separate himself from the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So even Barnabas, I mean, Paul's like amazed. Barnabas, you let Barnabas go astray? Wow, was even led astray by their hypocrisy. Verse 14, but when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter, your behavior is not in line with what you believe. At the core of who you are, you believe you're accepted through Christ and Christ alone. You're adding to that, Peter. And you're putting that expectation on others and that expectation shouldn't be there. And I said to Cephas in front of them all, if you a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? See, beneath the surface of his life was fear, insecurity, pride, lies, limiting beliefs about who God was. Would you put that, that picture of an iceberg up? You know, above the surface, what did we see in Peter's life? Favoritism, racism. And we could address it there, right? You could go up to Peter. And listen, sometimes you need to address behaviors. I'm not suggesting you don't. And you can say, Peter, stop being a racist. Stop showing favoritism. But that would have not gotten to the core of what Peter's issue was. He needed to take the gospel that he's accepted through faith in Christ and Christ alone and allow that to work on the area of his fears. Peter was afraid of these people that came from James. And the fact is, Peter, you want to be accepted by them more than you want to rejoice in the fact you're accepted by God. And until you recognize that, your life's not going to change. Because you're going to go from one fear to another fear to another fear until Christ gets a hold of your life and starts to change you from the inside. Do you see that? 
Why was Jesus the way he was? Because I think when people came at him with false expectations, he always went beneath the surface. And he asked the question, who am I? Why have I come? And what is this person asking me to do? What do we do? We tend to react, right? Fear, insecurity, lies, limiting beliefs. We react in a moment and we respond instead of stopping. And see, to walk in the Spirit means to be present. And if we're just responding to how people are responding to us, we're not being present. And we're not able to stop and say, what's going on beneath the surface of my life? What lies are there? Lies about myself, lies about God. What limiting beliefs, what fears, what insecurities. And if we're not willing, listen, if you're not willing to go beneath the surface, you're going to live with different personas when you work, with your family, online. You're going to be a different person based on the expectations of others because that's what human beings do, don't we? We're like chameleons at times. We try to live up to the expectations of others around us and our culture starts influencing and slowly we start to slip away just like Peter over time and we forget who we are and because of that we're not able to live out of the true identity we have in Christ. Do you see that picture? We have to be willing to go beneath the surface. Now how do we do this? Just quickly. Just quickly. I shared with this, you, this with you. There's my words. I shared this with you about a year ago, and this is a model that I found incredibly helpful. Can you put that model up of intentional and unintentional? Do you guys remember this? In your life, on the left-hand side, you're being formed right now. When you wake up in the morning and you turn on the television, that's spiritual formation. Now, it's spiritual formation into the likeness of CNN and Fox News or whatever you guys listen, I don't know. You're being formed when you listen to stories. Our culture is telling you stories constantly. Stories about what sexuality is for. What the purpose of life is. What my money is for. What power is for. Our culture, and even inside the church. Listen, Peter was led astray internally. Did you notice that? It wasn't externally. It wasn't all the bad people outside the church. It was the good people, right, inside the church that led him astray because he wasn't willing to question their stories. And their stories that we believe and those stories produce habits in our lives. And all of us have habits. And realize habits are good thing, good things if they're the right habits. But habits do something to you. Your habits deepen your desires. They deepen your loves. They deepen your pursuits. I didn't like running until I started to run. And then as I grew as a runner, I started to like running because running made me like running. Does that make sense? And often in our spiritual disciplines, those disciplines do something to us. But if we don't have those disciplines, if we're not checking our habits, then we're just simply being formed by our stories that we believe, whether our parents, the lies we believe, by the habits we're living to. And then third, relationships. Can you guys see that? You can go to the other slide there, Bella, the bigger one of, there we go. You can see that better. Unintentional spiritual formation, the relationships that are around us, they're influencing us. And finally, in the middle, what we see is the environment in which we live, the community, the town, the period of history in which we live. All of these things are influencing you right now and forming you into the person you are and the person you're becoming if you do nothing and just simply follow the waves of culture and the waves of life. Now, what are we proposing? Here's what we want to do. Watch this intentional spiritual formation. What we want to do is to take those stories we believe and just submit them to Christ and say, God, would you reveal the truth? Would you show me the truth about who I am? Listen, my parents said this. My neighbors said this. My friends said this. I was abused this way. I did this kind of abuse to others. I know what I've done, but would you tell me who I am? Would you speak into the lies? Father, would you show me what sexuality is for? Would you show me what money is for? And all I'm asking you to do is just surrender to his voice. 
I don't need to be the spirit in your life, but would you take the stories you've believed and just surrender them to Christ? Listen to his voice. Allow him to speak in your life. And then, instead of just having habits, Jesus said, the wise man, you remember this? Puts my words into practice. The wise man puts my words into practice, and he is the one who built his house on the rock. What are the practices? Look at Jesus' life. How did he get where he was? Just by being the son of God? No, he practiced. He practiced prayer. There were times he left the crowds, right? Went off into solitude. Spent time with his fathers. There's times where he was in the scriptures and he studied. There's times where he was in community with others. There's times of solitude. There was times of service. There was times of giving and sacrificing. Jesus had the practices of the Christian faith, the spiritual formations that cause us to become like Christ. Church, where are you in those things? Where are you in those things? If we want to become like Christ, we have to introduce ourselves into those practices like prayer, community, scripture, silence, solitude. Those things, they train us and they influence us to love the things that God loves. And then you need community. What's community? Community is what you see in this room. The only reason you are here and the only commonality for many of us, the greatest commonality we have is Christ. And in this culture, we tend to gather in affinity groups, and that's fine. But affinity groups don't connect us to people who are different from us, different backgrounds, different passions. The church, what's unique about our community is Christ makes us one. And there's no longer Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free. Instead, we're all one in Christ. We can learn from each other, experience life together. We need to be in community. And finally, we've got to have and rest in the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. This is John 15. And see, it's those qualities, if, as we start to pursue them, that's what we want to do at Bergen Park is to pursue these things, to allow truth to saturate our minds. We are transformed through the renewing of our minds, to allow the practices of Jesus to become our practices, to get in community together, which means don't just rely on us, guys. We're doing the best we can to create small groups, to create discipleship opportunities, but we're limited. We're limited. We're not able to lead everyone at the same time, and so we need your help. And so if you want to be in those places, we need you to speak to us. And maybe for some of you, you need to step up in that position of leadership. Say, hey, I'm afraid, but hey, we'll come alongside you. We'll care for you. We need to create community. And then finally, we need to rest in the power of the Spirit. And when we do that, the gap between who we are and the gap between how we live, it starts to become narrow and narrow and narrow. And the fact is, we don't look at ourselves with judgment and guilt, instead with grace and truth, because that's who we are. We're accepted because of what Christ has done. That's the picture of what God wants to do through us as we live out of, out of our identity. Hey, I'm gonna pray for us in just a moment, but we're gonna celebrate communion together. If you didn't grab the elements when you came in, I want us to, to just pause, take a moment, let's go and grab those elements. And as we grab those elements, can we just spend a few moments? I don't know, when, when, you, when you spend some time in a place like this for 30 minutes, listening to somebody. I don't know what the Spirit of God's stirring in you, but here's what I do know. The Spirit of God is stirring. And in this room, the Spirit of God is speaking and he's moving and he's convicting. And if you feel convicted today, if you're in this room right now and you know you're living different personas, you need to get that out. You need to be prayed for. You need to confess that. You need to first bring it to the Father. But if you wanna be set free, that takes community. James said, pray for each other so that you might be healed. Not forgiven, 
But healing comes when you are known. And if you're living in that place with different personas and different identities and secrets in your life, you need to, you need to take that first step and just say, Father, I want to commit this to you to live in honesty and humility. And maybe you need to come up front and simply have those that are going to be up front praying. Our prayer team's going to come up after communion and pray for you. But in this time of reflection, let's allow the Spirit of Christ to minister to us, to show us the ways that he wants us to respond. Let's spend some time in prayer.